Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to John, first John rather, the second chapter, where we pick up in our verse by verse study. If you are new to the rock, that is the Calvary Chapel way. We go verse by verse. We go verse by verse through the Bible, through the scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, no leapfrogging over the difficult passages. I would have in my own uh, maybe uh, preference, leapfrogged. I was going to say leapfrogged, <laughs> leapfrogged over this passage that we're going to look at because it's just so uh, black and white and a little bit difficult to preach about and teach about, but it's so important to get the whole counsel of God. Amen? Amen. So with that, 1 John chapter 2, put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. We'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to bow our hearts before you in your presence. We acknowledge is here with us this morning. Jesus taught us wherever two or three gather together in his name, there he is in the middle of it all. So welcome, Holy Spirit, welcome Jesus. Now as we stand before your word, may it come to life by your breath, your living breaths. Speak to us. And, and Lord, as I've already admitted, it's, it's just a tough word. It's so black and white. And uh, we pray that through the hearing and receiving and the obedience to this word that that we would be honoring Christ and be blessed and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, Barb and I had a delightful surprise happen way back to us in 1988. It began with a little bit of a fender bender early one morning. Barb was on her way to the grocery store with baby Jordan in our car seat, our only child at the time. Somebody wasn't paying attention to how they were driving and collided with Barb. By the time I arrived on the scene, it was a little more serious than what I was told. Uh, Jordan was fine, but it appeared Barb had broken her ankle or had an injury like that. So she was taken by ambulance to the hospital to get checked out. I made arrangements with uh, uh, baby Jordan with some of our friends, and then of course rushed over to the hospital there in San Jose, where we were living at the time. And I met her, Barb, in the ER. She was very uncomfortable. I asked her how she was doing. How are you feeling, sweetheart? And she said, I'm so nauseous. And I said, oh yeah, from the pain, huh? And she said, no, I'm pregnant. <laughs> What? <laughs> You're not pregnant. You have a broken ankle. <laughs> Even I can figure that out. <laughs> no, she said, they asked me before we take an x-ray, is there any way you could be pregnant? And she said, well, I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> and so they took one. And then they come back, congratulations, you're pregnant. <laughs> And so I was pretty surprised. Nine months later, baby Zachary appeared to, on the scene. And, but you know, I, I was really surprised. I kept saying, I kept saying, you're pregnant, seriously. And she kept saying, that's what the test said. Now, tests are like that, aren't they? They just clear things right up. <laughs> yes or no? No maybes, just a definitive uh, clarification. You asked, here's the answer. Uh, you know, you're, you can't be sort of, kind of pregnant, congratulations. You, you are pregnant. It's the only place you can be mostly dead is in Princess Bride. That's it. <laughs> you either are or you're not. There's a definitive answer, okay? And so there are a multitude of tests that tell you every conceivable, imaginable medical problem that you could ever have. And John is going to say this morning, there are several uh, spiritual tests 
as well, which we have alluded to in 1 John, that 1 John, the theme really is a bunch of tests, spiritual tests for the Christian experience, whether or not I am truly saved. There's a way to know. There's a way to detect if there's life, spiritual life, on board to get a heartbeat. You can do a spiritual sonogram by reading 1 John, and you'll find out. And, and he's not kind of, maybe, sort of. It's like in, out. Heaven, hell. And everybody who reads 1 John is like, well, that's what the Bible says. And while there is a way to understand in light of the whole counsel of God, uh, the grayness and the trying to understand in between, because there is in between, I think it's really good for us to let the word of God just sit upon our souls and do its work that God had sent it to do without a lot of trying to explain everything away. Just this is what it says, and we're going to take a look at that. His uh, readers, John's Christian readers, really needed assurance. Maybe you're like some of them, wondering, am I saved, really? Am I really saved? How can I really know? In their situation, they needed assurance because, remember, I told you about this popular wave of t false teaching was sweeping through first century Asia Minor, where Christianity started. Asia Minor really is modern-day Turkey. All of Turkey was where the seven churches of Asia, those are all in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And uh, Gnosticism had come on the scene. And if you want to think of it as kind of a New Age philosophy, they're very similar. They're not exact, but they're very similar. Uh, it was spirituality without moral accountability. It was relationship with God without Jesus Christ. It was walking in the light while remaining in sin. Now, Paul warns Timothy about the last days, and he says there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, folks in the last day will have a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. What does that mean? It means they will appear to be spiritual, they will sound religious, they will look spiritual, but there'll be no substance there. They will be just as lost, just as powerless over sin, just as much in the dark as before they supposedly saw the light. There's no oomph, there's no zeal, there's no moral transformation, there's just a lot of talk. There's no power. And so this was the spiritual enlightenment, and then it was called Gnosticism, from the Greek word to know, gnosko, in the Greek. And so that was the name of this new movement, the knowledgeable ones. We've transcended your primitive form of Christianity, and now we're walking in the light. And they would use all the Christian terms. Jesus, walking in the light, loving the brothers, everything was the same, except they changed everything. And so John has to say in their confusion, hey, let me tell you about real knowledge. And he uses the word we can know that we're saved by this test, this test, and this test. But the word know is used in two forms 40 times in 1 John, that we can know that we're saved, that we can know what God's uh, desire for our lives is over and over again. And if you underline no, it's just incredible how many times, because John is saying, let me tell you from a biblical point of view what knowledge of God is all about. And these Gnostics they, and these, those who followed them loved the idea of knowledge of God. They just had no interest in keeping his commandments. And so we pick up in verse 3. First John chapter 2, picking up at 3 to verse 11. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what, is, what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God is love. God's love, rather, is truly made uh, complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. 
Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. There's nothing in him to make him stumble, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. So we're going to pause there for this morning's reflection. If it sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar. John is a challenge to pastors and teachers because of his repetitive uh, logic. So he likes to come up with a uh, reasonable statement and come full circle, repeat it full circle, and then add a new principle, repeat it full circle, and add something new. And this is what you're hearing. Bottom line, if you call yourself a Christian, you have to live like it. In other words, if it's not what you label yourself that matters. It's not your profession. It's not the talk. But it's evidence in your life by what you say and what you don't say, what you do and what you don't do. That gives you away. That reveals the content of your heart. Your lips, honestly, biblically speaking, count for nothing. It's the evidence, the proof, the, the, the substance is in the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's in the living. So the proof of Christianity is not in the talking so much. It's in how you live. So let's gather our thoughts together around. He, he's got three claims here. Now, they're not false claims, but he's going to tell you whether or not they can be validated as true or false. Because the three claims that are in this section of scripture are things you and I should be seeing as evangelical born-again Christians. The three claims are, are we make them. Then they're followed up with, here's the litmus test. If it turns blue, you got a boy. If it turns pink, <laughs> you got a girl. Uh, whoops, I went off somewhere there. But you get it. If there's a response, you're alive. If, the, if you meet the qualifications biblically, not culturally. What does the scripture say qualifies you to inherit eternal life? It might be good to know what God thinks about getting it to heaven. Amen? All right, so... Claim number one is found in verse four. He says, if we claim to know him. Now, uh, in chapter one, he said this exact same thing. He said, if we claim to know him, but the context there is a doctrinal test. That is that uh, if you say, I know him, meaning God, you better make sure the hymn you know is the historical biblical hymn who saves, or you're going to be in trouble. So that's the context of, ask, of bringing out this claim. If we say that we know him, you better know the right hymn. You have to know Jesus, the biblical Jesus. And uh, just uh, this weekend, I was watching a program. It's, it's called Locked Up Abroad. It's a kind of a documentary kind of thing that's always, I think, very well done. Uh, this British journalist was locked up in Afghanistan in a, just a nasty jail by Muslim rebels. True story. Uh, he was asked about his religion in the interview. You're watching. It reenacted. And... Uh, they want a profession of Muslim faith from him in the cell. And he says, well, I'm a Sikh. And they said, oh, we want a profession of Muslim faith from you. So he said, well, you call him Allah, and we have a different name, but we have the same idea. It's all the same thing. So if you want to say that in, we're one and the same, that's okay with me. And I thought, well, thank you. You're going to appear in my sermon on Sunday. <laughs> For saying that. It may be okay with you, and I, you represent the Sikhs, and I don't know if you do it accurately, and I don't know if all Sikhs would say, hey, you know, it's all kind of the same. 
But Christians cannot say those things because we are serving a Lord who, ex who, who proclaimed to be an exclusive door to eternal life. He said every other door is false. Every other Christ is an antichrist. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to heaven but by me. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So, you know, Jesus has the right, if he's the Lord of heaven and earth, as the Bible says, that Jesus created all things by his word and by his will and through his power. And if he created you and gives life to your mortal body and then bled and died willingly as the God-man on your behalf to offer you a door into eternal life, then he has the right to say, excuse me, I'm not a hater, I'm a lover, but I am going to point out that I am the only way that you can be made right with God the Father is through God the Son. And so now... With that done, John goes to a claim again. Hey, if you say, I have come to know him, now the context here in your verse is a, a uh, moral test, not a doctrinal test. And so here's the paraphrase. To put it positively, John says, we can be assured that we really know him. We're truly saved if we do what he says, if we do his will, obey his commands. To put it negatively, say you meet a guy and he says, hey, I know the Lord, but then doesn't obey God's word, then you know you're being lied to, God's word. Now, I met a very interesting man a while ago, and in the course of the conversation, I asked him if he knew the Lord. And with the foulest language and the strongest expletives, and after blaspheming the good name of our Lord and Savior Jesus a couple times, he assured me that he was well acquainted with Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm not often speechless. But I didn't have much to say at that exact second. And then after that, of course, I had plenty to say. Now, of course, it's one thing to, uh, for a genuine believer who's fresh out of the world, fresh out of chaos and darkness and all kinds of sinful things, or for a real believer who's walked with the Lord for a while to have a, a verbal slip. But lacing your profession of faith and your testimony of the living God with profanity after profanity and blasphemy after blasphemy indicates the profession of faith is likely to be false. Now, I'm picking on this example. I could pick a, a, a dozen moral issues, but let's just pick this one because it's easy and I just explained it and we're going to go with this, okay? There's a commandment about God's name. He says, you know, you just, just don't throw it around. It's commandment number three. It's important to me. It's not an adjective. It's not a curse word. It's not something you should uh, misuse or misrepresent. And the Jews got this so good that even now, 3,500 years from Moses, they don't write G-O-D. They write G-D. Why? Oh, his name. His name. The Jews, unbelieving Jews, get it about his name. And if we're spirit-filled with the Christ of the Bible, then out of our mouths would not be breaking commands. There are commands about obscenities. Christians overlook all the time, Ephesians 5, verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, vulgar joking, which are out of place and not fitting for God's holy people. A chapter before, in chapter 4, verse 29, do not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. That's a command. It's in command mode. It's the scriptures. Do not let any unwholesome word 
come out of your mouth. So if you are filled with unwholesome words and the bent of your conversation in life is misusing his name over and over and over again and uh, uh, profanity constantly as a lifestyle, then the Bible says you cannot possibly know him. That's the Bible. Now, very important point I'm going to make. If, if you are taking a break, you need to come back now <laughs> because this is very, very important. Miss this and you'll get a wrong idea of the gospel. The moral test of keeping God's commands and in the next verse, which we'll get to, the social test of loving other people. There are two ways to tell if you're a Christian. They are not ways to become saved. They are ways to know you have been saved. I'm going to repeat that one more time in a different way. There is no way you are going to obey your way into heaven. It cannot happen. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, no one on earth, not one human being, will be pardoned before God because they were good enough. That's just it. And you will never be loving enough to earn eternal life. So if you get a message from a pastor that says you better get on the ball so that you can be saved, it's a theological insanity. It is error. Because the only way that anyone can be saved is through grace, trusting through faith plus nothing. It is not of your good works, lest any man boast. It is a gift of God. That was a quote from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Titus chapter 3 has it even better. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not in accordance with any righteous deed we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the regeneration and new birth of the Holy Spirit, which he sent to us through Christ. That's Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Not anything righteous you could do. All he's saying that is, and John is taking you back to the source of Christian conversion, the definition of what it is. Jesus in John 15, he said, you know, let me break it down to you so easy. This is what it means to follow me and to know that you're going to heaven. You get plugged into me. You're connected to the life of God uh, like this vineyard. Boys, take a look. You see the grapes growing? You see the fat vine? That would be me. And see the little branches that come, which are fed through the life of that vine, the, the life-giving sap of life. You see those branches? That would be you. And the fruit on it is your behavior. So anything in your life ought to be a reflection and an extension of the source of the life that's flowing in you ought to come out as fruit. And that fruit is really defined in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Love, joy, uh, goodness, patience, gentleness, uh, self-control, brotherly uh, kindness, and etc. He says those things ought to be in your life if you're plugged in, I mean, there's a second example that for Sunday school kids, that's God, <laughs> and there we are, appendages. And the only way that you can be saved is not by being good little branches, it's by being plugged in little bad branches that we are. <laughs> Once the bad branch gets plugged into the good vine, it becomes good. It's becoming a process. It doesn't come normally right that second everything, but that's why we have lifetimes. That's why we have discipleship, is getting to know how to get that sap out. And so what John is uh, saying is that it's not about keeping his commands. I can't do this. i got to do this is about letting go and letting the flow happen of life. Thank you for that illustration. Letting the flow happen. Keeping his commands is simply going with the flow. And the work that we do is about cultivating and pruning and facilitating the life that God put in us. 
It's not an effort on our own, and you, you have to really know that. Now he's going to say, and by the way, maybe it sounds, oh, those who say, I know him and don't keep his commands. Let me talk to you about a deeper principle, love. In love, it's not about, like I said, I can't do this, I got to do this because I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven. No, he says there in verse 5, the nature of this work is a labor of love. Let me read the verse. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. In other words, obeying God's word is the way we express our full-hearted love for him, our desire to please him in all things. And so, yeah, it is a lot of work to be a Christian, but it's not work of me generating some sort of goodness on my part. The work is learning how to die to myself, how to let him be the wind beneath my wings. Not doing a lot of this, but a lot of, oh, okay, letting him lift me, letting him carry me, putting myself in the posture so that that fruit can happen. And it is a lot of work, but what is it John says? When you're doing that, it's, it's a loving response. Of course you want to keep his commands. You'll love him. It's all about love. It's not about thou shalt not and thou shalt and like thou gotta and thou gotta's not, you know? It's not that way. I mean, F.F. Bruce said it this way. Obedience is the full flowering of our love for God. You know what? I see this as a, as a husband and wife relationship. A husband shows his love by not grieving his wife. It's not a chore to keep himself completely for her, to say no to things that would hurt her. If I find out something Barb detests, I stay away from that because it would be upsetting to our relationship and a total disrespect of love for me to embrace something that she doesn't like or offends her. You know, if she told me, you know what I really like, I really, I really like the color uh, pink, because she does. <laughs> and she's all about this new yellow that she's wearing. She said, I don't know if you know, but yellow's really in this season. <laughs> I said, apparently. <laughs> and I love it. So, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> oh. Give a guy a microphone. It's unbelievable. But if she says, which she has said, her least favorite color on the planet is orange. And every birthday, I just come up with pumpkin after pumpkin and just like orange cones from the road and just anything orange. Honey, a, a, a construction vest just for you on your birthday. This will surprise you that none of this is in my notes. <laughs> is that loving? Honey, I, I just told you I hate orange. Yeah, but I don't. God just told you, you know, I hate lying. I just hate it. I just hate it. Well, human condition, get used to it. We keep his commands because we have a love relationship for a somebody who laid down his life willingly, the God of the universe, who went to the cross and let them rip open his back pluck his beard out. He was thinking of me. If I don't go through this, Ross is damned. And so he says, Ross, just so you know, I hate coveting. I hate evil things. I hate lust and adultery and pornography. It makes me sick. I will ultimately burn it in fire forever. That's how I feel about it. And then I say, well, you may feel about it like that, but I don't. What does that say about my love for him? John says, oh, it says a lot if that's your pattern of life. We all make mistakes. We all are morally weak. First John 1 John 1.9 already said, we know we have sin. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We get that part. We slip and fall. But that 
earmark of your life, the bent, the, the mostly part. What is that saying about your love relationship with the Lord? It's not a lot of work to find pink things instead of orange. That's not a lot of work. I want to. Jacob was in love with uh, Rachel, right? I was getting Rachel and Rebecca a little confused. <laughs> she was the pretty sister, and he loved her, and he woke up after the honeymoon, and he was married to her less than beautiful, plain Jane Leah sister, older sister. And so uh, Uncle Laban says, you know what? This is what we do in these parts, okay? Listen, work another seven years, and I'll give you the one you really want. And so it says in Genesis 29, 20, girls, get ready to go, oh, all right? So Jacob's, not yet. <laughs> Let me read the verse. Girls, they just can't wait for that kind of thing. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. What, are you, what is God going to tell me that I, I, is going to be hard? Oh, I've sacrificed so much. I've stopped destroying my life for him. It's so hard to give up the things that would just ruin everything, but I've done it. Oh, come on. Come on. What? God saying, excuse me, I'm God of the universe. Nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. They come into the garden, and he goes to them. Who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he uses the God phrase, I am, and they bow. And he says, let me help you all up because we got a job to do, fellas, all right? But just so you all know, I am in control. And what am I going to tell him? Oh, it's too hard to stay away from sin. Whatever God could ask, he's giving me eternal life instead of eternal damnation. And then on top of it, he's going to reward me for what? Giving a cup of water to somebody. He says, give a cup of cold water in case you're thinking, when I get there, you know, I'm going to have the little ghetto house and, the, and everybody else is going to have a mansion in glory and I'm going to be like a, out in the cabana somewhere. <laughs> and he says, no, no, I'm going to make it easy. Not only am I giving you eternal life for free when you don't deserve anything, but I'm going to ladle on top of that eternal reward and you will sit with me on thrones. And when I'm judging the world, on Judgment Day, guess who's judging with me and you guys, my church, judging the world and fallen angels as well because that's what I think of you. And John says, excuse me, his commands are not a burden. Amen. <laughs> All right, I'm getting all fired up. I've completely lost my place here. <laughs> but now we're moving. Oh, the summary of what he, he's going to sum up the moral test now in verses 5 and 6. The summary for the moral test is a doozy, folks. Get ready for this one. So claim one was, I know the Lord. But, and this is how he says, anyone who says, I live in him, or I know the Lord, must live as Jesus did. Now, let me tell you, when I first read that as a new Christian, that was like a big slap across the face. He's saying, if I claim to know him, I must live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. Now, we have to understand what that verse means, all right? Um, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we need to be sinless and morally perfect in every way as the Son of God. It means that the way Jesus lived his life, we also, by principle, live that kind of, that manner of lifestyle. 
there's a similarity between what we see in the Gospels and, and our own lives. That's what it means. I really like this little illustration, a sculptor, a famous sculptor who made this uh, beautiful uh, sculpture of a lion out of a block of granite. He was asked, well, how did you accomplish such a wonderful masterpiece? And he replies, oh, it was easy. All I did was chip away everything that didn't look like a lion, you see? <laughs> Are you, and, and this is the goal of the Christian life. He says, anybody who says, I know him, must resemble him. How he lived his life. In every way. So, uh, I like what Martin Luther said. 1500s ref, uh, reformer, he says this. It is not Christ walking on the sea but his ordinary walk that we are called on here to imitate. So, for example, Jesus, here's the first principle. Jesus, at 12 years old, he gets it. Mary and uh, Joseph are looking for him. They misplaced the Messiah, which I find very uh, disconcerting. <laughs> for a couple days, said, we, we lost the Lord. <laughs> And, and when they finally find him in the temple, he says, excuse me, mom and dad, but didn't you know, didn't you realize that I must be about my father's business? Principle number one, that all of us can do, not perfectly, doesn't have to be perfect. He knows who we are. But principle number one, we're about our father's business. Jesus grows into a man, and then he says, I do not seek what pleases me. I'm quoting him. I do not seek what pleases me, but only what pleases the Father. Principle. We're not going to get that perfectly, but there's a principle, a, a trait about who we are, that when you look at the bent of our lives, we're either living for ourselves or we're living for another. We are either, either calling the shots or we're listening for directions, and that we can do. He rises before dawn. He spends time in prayer. His life emanates from a life of prayer and intimacy with God the Father as God the Son. You know, Jesus uh, was humble. And he said, you know, it's not about being served like I could be as Lord, but it's about serving and he said, let me give you an example I want you to follow. So he does the job nobody in the room wants to do that says, hey, I'm the lowest in the room, therefore I'm washing the feet. He says, follow my example. Be like that. If anyone claims to know the Lord, you have to live like Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? In humble, hu humble humility and servitude. He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life away. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Your life must replicate that. You must be a person who prays, who, who is about the pleasure of God rather than your own pleasures. You must be somebody who, who, who puts the needs of others above their own because that's what Jesus did. He was persecuted because he stood for the truth. A lot of people were mad at him. People should be mad at you. You shouldn't be well-received everywhere you go. Something should stand out. Something should rub somebody the wrong way because you're always constantly shining the light, not in an unnecessarily offensive or obnoxious or inappropriate way, but living your life in a godly way. Anyone who wants to live a godly life shall be persecuted. That's a promise in the book of Acts. Nobody puts it on their refrigerator, but it is a <laughs> promise nonetheless. He shared the gospel. He parks next to somebody who the Jews said had cooties. He, he didn't think people had cooties. So he sat down next to her and said, let me tell you about this water I could give you. He cared about people. He had the, the gospel going out. If I claim to know him, I must imitate, replicate, reflect the way he lived. Those are all ways you can say, I, I, got, I see that in my life as not as much or as perfect or consistent, but I see it, check. He says, you can be assured that you are on the right path. 
So that's the claim, I'm living in him, by the way. So finally, the third brings us to the social test. Verses 7 through 11, he's concluded the test now that's moral. He says, if you say you know the Lord, there better be some moral proof of that. And now the social test about love for uh, professing other uh, believers, professed Christians. F.F. Bruce, one more time, is a good commentator. Love and obedience are inextricably interwoven because all the commandments of God are summed up in the law of love. So we're going to be talking now about love. Here's the paraphrase. Anyone who claims to be enjoying a loving relationship with God but is unloving to others cannot possibly be walking with the God of love. Loving others shows that we are really in relationship with the God of love. A, lo a life of love brings clarity. We get it. We know who he is. We know who we are and what we need to be doing. We won't get tripped up when we're all about love. But the one who is unloving by nature is disconnected from God and his truth. He's blinded by the darkness and he's just plain Lost, And so what he's saying here is, is that when we're all bound up with resentment and hate and anger or acting in unloving ways, we can't even see straight. It's like prejudice. It makes you irrational. You can't think clearly because you're prejudging, you're prejudiced. And so he's saying the one who isn't loving is in the dark. He, he's, he comes to a decision. He can't make a decision because uh, his resentment or his anger or his unloving, unkind ways is kind of fogging up the windshield of, spiritually speaking, of his life. And so John is going to say, you can't claim to love God and not love his kids. It's impossible. And as a dad, that makes perfect sense to me. Now, if somebody claimed to, to love me and to know me, and they know my three kids, Jordan, Zach, and PJ, and Caitlin, who's married to Zach, if they know my kids, and then my kids are in need, and, and they neglect meeting the need, they know they could and they should, but they don't. They don't care. And they say, you know, we, are, we really do love you. How about if you mistreat one of my kids and you claim you love me, but you know, I don't like your kids. You know what? And, and in fact, we're, we're kind of abusive to them. We've been talking smack about them. And you know what? They got a little attitude. They're the preacher kids. So I'm just making stuff up, you, you realize, uh, as I normally am up here. and not making things up. I'm just talking ad hoc at you. Well, listen. You can't possibly love me. Mom and dad, you're thinking along these lines. If you mess with the kids. So he's saying, stop with the, oh, I love, I, I love God, I love God, I love God. And then you, you treat people like trash. Mean-spirited, critical, fault-finding, slanderous, gossiping, excluding people, envying, jealous, resentment. It goes on for days, saying unkind things about them. John says, how can the God of love be coursing through the soul of your heart and you enjoying this beautiful love and then the, the, his children, that's what brothers mean. How could you? <laughs> how could you dupe yourself into thinking that things are cool this way when things are not cool this way? Now, before we excuse ourselves from the word hate, because John is so black and white, isn't he? You know, you know where he got that whole black and white thing from, don't you? His master. The one he hung around for three years. Jesus, very black and white. Listen, I mean, John is like, <laughs> you know, if you, you say you love God, you keep his commandments. If you don't, you don't know him. And Jesus, listen to him. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is saying, when it comes to me, 
There's no room for neutrality. The person who says, I'm not doing anything against Christianity, Jesus says, you are. You're against me. You're working against me. He says, I'm, I'm gathering, and I'm gathering, and I'm working. And, and you say, well, I'm not into it. I'm not helping. I'm not lending a hand. He says, you're scattering. You can't have it down the middle. That's where John gets it from, that you have to, uh, you're one way or the other, that you have to ha be loving with God, and you have to be loving with the kids. You have to show that way. Or, uh, I mean, it's easy to excuse it. He says, here's what he's saying. If I say I love God and I hate somebody, then the truth is not in me. Now, the word hate, we're all like, well, I don't hate anybody. Oh, let me help you out. <laughs> I hate to be the one to do this to you. But the word means to be unloving. So anything that falls as withholding love is equal to hate. Now, let me go to a proof text for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the definition of love. We read it at our weddings. We know it well. Number one, love is patient. Now follow me. Love is patient. Love is patient. The opposite of patient impatience, being short. The opposite of love is thank you. So to be impatient is to hate. It is a shade. It is a nuance. It is under the rightful biblical category of hatred because it's the opposite of the definition, the biblical definition of love. Love is kind. What's the opposite of kindness? Unkind, right? What's the opposite of love? Hate. All right. Then, therefore, when I'm unkind, I am a hater. I am hating. All right? So he says love isn't proud. It doesn't envy. It's not rude. Oh, love is not rude. And if I am rude, the opposite, hate. It's a hateful thing to be rude. It is totally. But we've excused everything. I'm not the, the uh, aggressive hater. I'm the passive aggressive hater. I hate you passively by withholding. Do you see? So he says all of these things that we can be self-absorbed, gossiping, critical, looking down on others, considering ourselves uh, superior when you're sizing somebody up. Oh, okay, I'm better. I make more money or I'm, I'm pretty or I'm more handsome or I'm older or I'm younger, whatever it is. When you're doing your thing, he's saying hate. It's a shade of hate. You're not better than anybody else. We all cost the same. The cross. That's the great equalizer. We all got in as paid by him. And so, really, we're not surprised to see that we can pick any of God's moral commands in the entire Old Testament and isolate it and, and, and think about it. Keeping it and refraining from it will be in perfect line with loving God and our fellow man. And so, we... we we are loving God and not hating others uh, because we are enjoying his great love. And so one trait of love I want to leave you with that always gets uh, misunderstood, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Lest you think loving people is a misguided notion. In other words, this verse that I just read to you, that it delights in, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't turn a blind eye to sin or immorality or injustice or wrongdoing. It embraces truth and rejects falsehood. It corrects and draws moral lines. A disregard for moral distinctions and truth is unloving and hateful. So if I pat you on the back and I happen to know the road is out and the bridge is missing, 
but I love you. Who am I to get in your face and say, yo, listen, you're headed for a disaster. I don't want to upset you. I know people have told you that. It makes you crazy. I'm sorry, but you know, that is hate. You hate the person. And so there's a moral side of truth as well. And we keep that uh, truth and love. There's a moral side to love, I should say. So uh, Romans 12, uh, verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So we love the sinner, we hate the sin. You've heard that very much. And it's a slippery slope, isn't it? There's a subtle line between reaching out to immoral people and affirming them in their darkness. And may the Lord lead us in that regard because it's so difficult. So what do we take away from this? I mean, he said some things. He said, listen, if you are immoral in your life, basically every day, you don't know the Lord. Best case scenario you're a fallen Christian having a season of struggle with sin, where immorality is a thing you're going through. That's the best hope for you, is, is that you're only ruining your witness with the Lord and compromising the reward you'll receive in eternity and hindering your good relationship with him. Uh, that's really the best case scenario for somebody who claims to be a Christian, yet you look at their life and there's not a lot of love and there's not a lot of moral transformation going on. Best case is they are a weak believer, saved, but struggling in all of those areas. Worst case scenario is no matter what you think and, and what you've proclaimed is you don't know him and you're on the road to eternal loss. That's the worst case. So for me, I looked at this and I just said, Lord, I want to see all the ways that I listed that are unloving, hateful. And I noticed that I can be a hateful person because of all the ways I listed that. I repent of those things. Teach me and help me to be more loving like you. That's the way you deal with that. You get let God convict you of things that don't belong and chisel away the things that don't look like the lion of the tribe of Judah so that you can better reflect him. So there's no need to just say, well, you know, I have to leave condemned and I feel, you know, like I'm not a Christian. No, unless, of course, you're not. And then it's a great warning. I'd rather upset somebody and make them think hard and have them come to eternal life than to affirm somebody in a wrong way and think that because of grace and some misunderstanding of what grace means that they get the wrong idea and they perish. I would much rather just try to err on the side of, hey, check this out. Take it to heart. It's God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and all the ways it blesses us and teaches us. We ask your blessing now on the time of reflecting and singing the closing song just that you'd touch our hearts and give us the assurance we're looking for. Thank you for the grace that saves us. In Jesus' name, amen.